do you feel any sense of guilt at all that as a philologist, as a professor of English language, with which you were concerned with the factual sources of language, you devoted a large part of your life to a fictional thing? No, no, actually, it's done me a lot of good, yes. <laughs> no, I'm like, no, no, there's quite a lot of linguistic wisdom in it. I don't feel any guilt complex about the Lord of the Rings. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Other Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I don't have too much to say to you at this point. Um, we're going to basically jump right into the content real quickly. I cover all the Valar. I touch a little bit on the Maiar and the Wizards in this episode and give you a, give you a taste of the origin of Ents, Dwarves, and Hobbits. So, some really cool stuff uh, to talk about. Um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, we're just going to jump right into it. I hope you enjoy the show. I find it interesting that The Silmarillion was one of the last works of Tolkien to get published because parts of it were actually some of his first initial writings. Apparently, he began his writings on the Silmarillion as a way to give England its own mythology, similar to Greeks and the Greek mythology. There is a story that the creation of Greek was due to these gods. Tolkien was basically writing his own version for England. Quite fascinating. I see Tolkien's pantheon as a mashup of his core Catholic beliefs and with the structure of the Greek mythos. There is a one true God in his story, uh, but his Valar and these Ainur are essentially gods to, to us. They have powers of the world. Um, a lot of them do have similarities to, to certain Greek gods as well, and I will point that out when... I talk about certain ones, um, but there is a hierarchical structure within Tolkien's pantheon, with Arrow Iluvatar obviously being the head honcho, he's the CEO of this whole operation, um, and he's got some lieutenants, uh, Manwe is basically the leader of the Valar and reports directly to Arrow, and then there are Maiar, who are servants of the Valar, um, that would be uh, where Gandalf sits in this hierarchy. Um, and even Sauron is a Maiar and a servant of Melkor, who is the precursor Dark Lord um, in Tolkien's world. This hierarchical structure is interesting. Um, it seems like all the magic in the world of Middle-earth would draw from Eru Iluvatar. If Gan Gandalf's power... He gets from Eru, right? Uh, if you're familiar with the with Brand, the author Brandon Sanderson, um, he's got some really interesting essays on 
magic systems in fantasy. And there's basically two schools of thought. There is a soft magic system, uh, which tends to be vague, undefined, and there are there's more mystery with its rule set. Uh, and there's limitations, but they don't necessarily get explained. Um, a hard magic system is something we would see in Avatar The Last Airbender. They tried to make rules more explicit, and they give us examples of that. Uh, another good example of a hard magic system would be Full Metal Alchemist. The, the magic in that series is called alchemy, and alchemy is taking... It's taking something and making something else from it. You can't just make something out of nothing is basically the gist of it. But I would say that Middle-earth has uh, one of these soft magic systems. We see Gandalf perform magic and spells, but there's no explanation, which I think works in, in this situation. Uh, before I get too off topic, I do want to to introduce you to the Valar first. So that's where I'm going to be starting starting the show off. Uh, each of these Valar have a pretty long and descriptive history. I won't be covering them. I won't be covering their histories in its entirety because um, I think I could also do an episode on each one of these characters, potentially. Um, some of them aren't as fleshed out as the others, but there's a lot of lore and history uh, with these characters. Uh, that gets explored more throughout the Silmarillion and in some other works of Tolkien's. But yeah, let's see how this plays out. So, Melkor, I've talked a, a decent amount about so far. But he, I'm going to start with him. He is the first to be named. He's the most power, powerful of the Valar. Even though he's not necessarily considered a Valar by the peoples of Middle-earth, he is a Dark Lord. He is the evil figure the precursor to Sauron. Um, and, and the people don't see him as a positive force in the world at all, at all. so they don't necessarily consider him a Valar. Um, but he is on that level um, with the other Valar, as, in terms of power, at least. Uh, the elves would actually call him Morgoth, which would translate to mean Black Enemy. Uh, for all this malice and evil he brings into the world... And he's essentially been fighting the Valar for dominion of Arda since it was sung into existence by the Ainur. And he is the reason for the entire world falling into conflict. Uh, there is the War of the Jewels and with the War of Wrath. That is basically all his fault and it's just them fighting over Arda. I will explore those more a little bit later. But brother to Melkor is Manwe. Manwe is the leader of the Valar and considered to be the king of Arda, king of the world. Uh, he, he is the closest of the Valar to Eru Iluvatar. So he's basically his right-hand man. And it is said that he lives atop the world's tallest mountain uh, with his wife Varda. This is, you know, very reminiscent of Zeus living on top of Mount Olympus. And Manwe is the a god of air and wind for the most part, and creator of the great eagles. And these eagles we see in the story are basically his way of divine intervention. Um, a lot of fans would speculate that 
Manwe sends the Eagles to save Frodo and Sam at the end of uh, Return of the King, which is interesting. Um, he's not directly fighting against Sauron, but he does have an impact on the events that shape the world. And it is Manwe who eventually banishes Melkor to the edges of the physical universe, and it brings about a time of peace. And it's also said that Manwe cannot comprehend evil. Like, he just he just doesn't get it. So, through and through, he's a d good dude. Now, his wife, Varda, is considered to be Queen of the Valar. She is known as the Lady of the Stars, um, and is also considered to be the most beautiful of all the Valar. Uh, as Iluvatar's light shined in her face. And she, you know, she was called the Lady of the Stars. Basically, she created the stars and formed all the constellations in the sky. Uh, and the the elves loved her the most. Out of any other of the Valar, um, the elves just really dug her stuff. Now, we also have Ulmo. Uh, Manwe, Ulmo, and Aule are kind of like the big three. Of the Valar, uh, Olmo is lord of the oceans and sea. Yeah, he was significant in helping shape the world. Most of the world is water, I imagine, um, just like our world. But he did not reside in Valinor, uh, which is kind of like this home base for the Valar. Uh, and he never had a wife, but uh, he, he essentially lives in his own domain under... Um, he lives in his own domain at the bottom of the ocean floor. So, I mean, yeah, he's basically Poseidon in this situation. Or, or Aquaman. He could be Aquaman-like. Uh, whichever you want to compare him to. I mean, superheroes are just a modern god mythology, essentially. So that, that works as a great comparison. It is said that uh, Melkor actually feared Olmo the most. As Melkor could never hope to tame the wildness and ferocity of the sea. Next we have Aule, the smith and lord of the natural substances. Now Aule I find very interesting. Um, he resides over like the dirt, rocks, minerals, basically the, the physical stuff of the world. Um, and he is most known for the creation of the dwarves actually. So I had mentioned that the children of Iluvatar were elves and men. Eru Iluvatar was the only one that created, had anything to do with the creation of elves and men. Ale, in this act of rebellion, gets impatient and creates dwarves. So they're just like, basically, Eru's stepchildren. <laughs> um, this does cause issues. Uh, Iluvatar... Aule eventually feels like he betrayed Iluvatar, creating these beings. And he was going to destroy them until Eru sees that he really cares about them. He, he kind of checks out the dwarves' vibe, and, and they seem pretty cool. So he lets them live. But he's like, you got to wait until elves and men are on the scene. We can't just have the dwarves running around. So he asks that they be put to sleep. And he, they basically get put in mountains all across the physical world, and they go into hibernation until the world is ready for elves and men. Now, I've heard some theorizing, theory crafting that this is why elves and dwarves in particularly don't like each other, 
because the elves would see the dwarves as the, the outliers out of basically the rest of the races. They are not the children of Iluvatar. They're kind of like the bastards, you know, bastards of the world. Um, but there's actually another story um, that I find more interesting about why that might be the case of why uh, dwarves and elves don't particularly like each other. But I'm sure this had uh, some of this added to that reasoning as well. So, you know, we see dwarves as being smiths in most fantasy media. Alay being a smith, it makes sense that he would make the dwarves. He teaches them smith work and things of that nature. Uh, he just loves creating stuff and things and creates his own beings and then teaches those beings his ways. So uh, Ale also has a partner, um, Yavanna, known as the giver of fruits. Uh, she resides over all growing things in the world. Uh, she creates trees. Um, and because of the fear uh, that she now felt towards men, elves, and eventually the dwarves, uh, she, she was in a lot of fear that they would harm her trees. So Yavanna expresses these anxieties she's feeling to Manwe. Um, and Manwe brings that up the chain to Arrow. And because and and then this leads to the creation of Ents. The Ents are essentially guardians of the forest. Now Yavanna has um, these awesome Ents, these living, walking, breathing tree guardians to, to help guard the forests. So the men, elves, and dwarves only, I imagine they only take what they need from the forest. They're not going to destroy them. You know, um... I love uh, I love the ants. They're 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 such an interesting uh, creature in this world, and I found it I found this uh, origin story for them to be pretty interesting as well. Uh, basically, any living thing in Tolkien's world does get an explanation for why it exists, um, except the hobbits. Funny enough, even though they're kind of the the center center point for a lot of this, his stories, um, there is. Some, there are some theories about why hobbits are around, so I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Yeah, so the the next... Uh, I've been kind of going through these Valar in order of significance to the story and how much information they have. So I'm probably going to get through this a little quicker um, now that we're, we've gone through most of the important ones. But uh, we have Arome, um, who's known as the Huntsman. And he would f hunt in the forest of Middle-earth, um, even after the other Valar have, have withdrawn themselves from the world, and they're not really, they're, they're kind of holed up in Valinor. Um, he, he still liked to tend to the forests, hunt in the woods, um, and he's actually the first one to discover the elves' awakening. Um, and because of that, he, na he names them the Eldar. Uh, and he would um, forever be a close friend and ally to the elves. One of the significant things Arome did was also create uh, the first rainbow, apparently, um, referred to as like a bridge to heaven. And he did this using the hair from his wife, uh, Vanna. Um, he also had a pretty badass horse and steed, horse or steed, and a horn. Um, that I'll go into more detail uh, when I have an episode on Arame. Uh, his partner, Vanna, was the younger sister to Yavanna, which um, 
yeah, Yavana and then Vana. So they're basically spelled the same. Uh, Vana just doesn't have a Y-A in the front. That's pretty interesting. Um, that's probably the least creative Tolkien got with his languages and words. Um, the dude made his own languages, but just... It's like, yeah, the, the younger sister just gets a smaller version of the big sister's name. That makes sense. Anyway, uh, Vana is the younger sister to Yavanna and was known as the Ever Young, the Queen of Flowers. Uh, with a title like that, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty safe to assume that she would preside over flowers. So, like her big sister, she presides over growing things, but more akin to, like, a garden level of growth. Uh, Yavanna was probably presiding over whole forests and the like. Vana is on a much smaller scale, just kind of you know, protecting and making sure the gardens are okay. Uh, we have Mondos. And Mondos is interesting, um, and he's probably the most different out of all of the other Valar, uh, just in terms of what exactly he does and presides over. Mandos is responsible for the judgment of spirits, specifically that of dead elves. Um, and he's basically the Eru Iluvatar's judge jury and i don't think he'd be an executioner but he he is taking that role um he kind of re reminds me of hades yeah uh, i think that's a safe comparison to make he presides over the underworld but he's not necessarily an evil figure um he's just kind of doing the, the hard work that needs to get done you know it's not gloryful it's kind of grim and depressing in cases but somebody's got to do it right now keep is basically just judging elves and they don't tend to die in huge numbers unless they're in in a war because elves are immortal but they can be killed and die so i imagine there's just a lot of time where there he's just in the dry season there's not too much work or not too much going on so he's probably just super bored uh his demeanor does seem to be that of kind of grim and melancholic uh but yeah he basically rules over the dead um he is described as being stern and dispassionate. Uh, and he's also in charge of the dooms that might fall upon the world. Uh, doom in the sense of maybe like natural disasters, um, but not necessarily on the scale of what Melkor would be doing, where he's really fucking shit up. Basically, he would have to just play this play a part in the the, the role or the, the balance of nature you know uh one inter another interesting thing about him is he has a hound called gorgamoth who is essentially like this badass guard dog after one of the conflicts melkor would actually be imprisoned and it was gorgamoth's duty to guard him and make sure he did not escape to bring more evil upon the world so Mondos has a, a few different connections, uh, brother to both Ermo and Nienna, and husband to the Val Valier uh, Vare. And I am trying my best with these pronunciations. I did look up ha like a, a pronunciation guide for most of these, but uh, I'm probably doing a bad job with at least some of them. So my apologies. Uh, yeah, brother to Ermo and Nienna, and husband to uh, Valare. Um, the Valar just kind of get more obscure from here. Uh, Valare is known as the Weaver. She is responsible for 
weaving the story of Arda. It's said that her storied webs have covered the Hall of Mandos. I imagine like these mosaic tapestries that would depict basically all of the history of the world, which is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, I find that to be intriguing. Uh, Nienna is known as she who weeps and is responsible for the mercy and grief. Basically all the mercy and grief in the world. Uh, she has no partner, and her part in the music of the Ainur was one of deep sadness. It was probably like a Nirvana cover. Uh, and... When she sang her part in that song, that's when grief basically existed in the world now. She was, she's actually pretty interesting as she was the mentor to Gandalf, uh, Gandalf the Grey. Um, and it's said that she taught him pity before he was chosen to become a wizard and sent to aid the peoples of Middle-earth. Uh, that's further down in the timeline and it will get fleshed out in another episode. And I'm going to talk about the Maiar and what exactly the wizards are um, towards uh, once I get through the next couple of Valar here. Uh, so I have Ermo, Este, Tolkis, and Nessa. And then I'm going to start breaking down the Maiar. So Ermo is also known as the Master of Desires. And he is primarily responsible for the creation of dreams and desires as well as visions so, and he's also commonly referred to as Lorien. Um, this is also the place of his, where he lives, his dwelling. Um, is the, and he's the younger brother of Mandos. Um, he has a partner, Este. Este is responsible for healing the hurt and the weary. Some healing archetype. Um, it is said she did not walk about during the day. She slept upon an island, a lake of Lorellin and Lorien, and all of those who dwelt in Valinor drew refreshment from the fountains of Este and her spouse, Ermo. So we have Este and then Tolkas and Nessa, who are the last like pairing of the Valar. Tolkas is Tolkas is known to be strong. Um, he's also described as steadfast. So he is the Valar primarily. He is basically god of war. He is responsible for participating in war. Um, he's also the last of the Valar to descend into the physical world of Arda and and take on a form. But uh, once he heard Melkor was starting some shit, he was like, all right, you know, it's time. Um, it's interesting. I'm looking. Yeah, he's definitely uh, the god of war, Ares, um, pretty much uh, in this situation, it seems like. And he, his wife, Nessa, would be the last of the Valar. And she is regarded as to be the least important of them, uh. She is notable for her speed, being fast as an arrow in movement, it's described as. Um, so she was referred to as Nessa the Swift. Um, she's a sister to Arome, the hunter. And if it, 
yeah, there wasn't a lot of detail on the back half of a lot of the Valar. Uh, well, there are details, but it's mostly ingrained in the histories of Middle-earth, so I didn't want to bring up stuff I haven't talked about yet and then just confuse listeners more. But I basically tried to, you know, hit, hit the, the major points of what these characters are like um, and what kind of archetypes they fall into. Uh, a lot of them are pretty similar, and we could probably match them up with uh, Greek gods. Um, but uh, the, the Maiar are also um, pretty interesting and worth talking about. The, the most famous of the Maiar would be the Balrog and Gandalf. Um, now, not every Maiar is a wizard or a, you know, mountain demon. They're essentially just servants to the Valar. Uh, even though Melkor isn't necessarily considered a Valar, he doesn't get that title. He has Maiar of his own. He recruits Maiar over to his cause. And there are supposed to be a lot of the Maiar, but not all of them are given names. It's not until the Third Age would five of these spirits, the Maiar, uh, be incarnated into the wizards and sent to Middle-earth in, in that form to, you know, basically the goal of the Astari, which are the wizards, is to fight the good fight for Eru Iluvatar and spread his message. Not spread his message, but they are servants to the Valar, and they, you know, there is a hierarchy to this, so they would serve under Manwe, and then there's Eonwe, who is like Manwe's head Maiar, head assistant in this hierarchy. But each Maiar is basically associated with one of the Valar in particular, and it's said that the Maiar were more likely to change their form than the Valar did, even though they could have change their form, they eventually, they essentially just choose one single form to be represented. Um, you know, they got to have all their fans and followers recognize them, but the Maiar, they're kind of, you know, already being played down a bit in the shadow of the Valar. So they, they, it's said that Gandalf walked among several, several different forms. Um, I mean, we see him transform from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. Uh, basically that is him getting a promotion. Um, there is Saruman, the white, Gandalf the gray, Radagast the brown, and then there's two blue wizards who don't get fleshed out all too much. Uh, these wizards are also known as the Astari. And Saruman, we know, kind of betrays the, the mission of the wizards. So Gandalf is promoted in his place, essentially. Um, and he, he is, I would say... I mean, we know about him for a reason. He was the one probably most active, at least in the Third Age, uh, when you know, in combating of Sauron, in the in the fights against Sauron, who is a Maiar to Melkor. Now, I will say, going through um, the Silmarillion, just reading. Uh, the text and doing additional research um, when I'm writing the notes for the show, it does seem like this is all over the place. The, the deeper bits of his histories and lore 
Uh, it's probably because he never really got a chance to finish it. The Silmarillion was published after his death and finished and edited together to resemble some form of work uh, by his son Christopher. And it, it could have played out a little differently if Tolkien was really committed to finishing it. It's still, you know, I think worth talking about, worth reading. Um, it's definitely, you know, creative in its approach. And it, it, at the end of the day, Tolkien developed languages and built this world and wrote those stories to justify their existence. And, you know, we get a lot of detail on certain things, but his main characters, essentially, that being the hobbits, don't really get an origin story um, to this regard as men and elves have. Uh, through my research, it seems that hobbits were are a subset of men. So they come from men, they develop their own culture, um, and kind of split off um, from men and developed to be hobbits through, you know, I mean, evolution, what other way would it be? Which is interesting in and of itself. There's no concrete answers on this, but uh, I, I like that idea. I want to do an episode just talking about all the different races and flesh out their stories uh, a little bit more. I figure I might do a, a another companion episode to this one, talking more about the Maiar, um, the Astari, and uh, some of the major players in that category. Uh, but I feel feel like I touched on the Valor pretty good. Um, covered all of the all of them, all of the Valar. Uh, the Einor don't all get named. It's basically the Valar. Um, and there's even two titles of Valar. There are uh, the Eratar, which are the, the strong, the strongest of the Valar. And then there's the, the lesser Valar. Again, like everybody's got five different names and a hundred different titles. Some of it's unnecessary. I feel like uh, you don't need to know, have it all memorized to appreciate it and I, I had fun talking about this so i would expect a, a companion episode to this one fleshing out like you know gandalf's whole backstory sauron um that would that would be fun and interesting uh and if there's anything you want me to talk about sooner let me know um you can follow me on instagram at the other worlds podcast that's really my only internet presence right now yeah well, I, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you are healthy. And I hope this offers some form of escape. All right. I'll catch you next time on the Other Worlds podcast. <laughs>